This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Mustafa Akil. He's a Turkish political commentator and author of the book Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty. I spoke with him on June 12, 2012, in his apartment in Istanbul, Turkey. Download the MP3 of the produced show with Mustafa Akil at onbeing.org. Do you find something to eat? I, I'm okay. I didn't. I got some water. Where are we? This is really out of water. Okay, well, let's see. Can I serve you guys something? Like, we had water. So thanks for finding me. Yeah. My <laughs> pleasure. I'm yeah. really glad to be here. Yeah, same here. Is yeah. this your first time? It is, yeah. Okay. But I'm coming back. <laughs> yeah, I already know. I just got here yesterday. <laughs> Where are you staying? Um, we're staying at a small hotel. What's it called? Um, Sari Konek in Sultan Ahmed. Right next to us. Okay, well, yeah. 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 the tourist area. Um, this trip originally got planned because um, Bartholomew invited me to come help him lead a discussion. On, it's called it's an environmental summit. Yeah, I know the hulking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I that was supposed to go there. But you were supposed to go. I was supposed to go there, but I had to skip because of some other engagements. Yeah. yeah. I'm flying to the U.S. tomorrow. I know. And then they they scheduled it, and then the Rio summit dates were set, and so mm-hmm. some people are having to fly straight from uh, mm-hmm. from Hulking to Rio, which sounds like really bad jet lag to me. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, Jane Goodall, who lives in wherever she lives, flying to Istanbul and then, or, or Africa. Yeah, or she lives in California. I'll give you some not Okay, it's really nice here. By the way, should I wear something a little more decent? No, I mean, you look fine. Like you, you will show everything, like the trousers. Or no, it'll be from here. It'll be from here. Just from here. Yeah, from here. Still, it's shirt a little nicer than. If you like, no, no, no. We'll be back in a minute. Just, Look, just, I'm not dressed up. If you show up in a suit, we're going to. I know this isn't. Is this a handbag? No, it's mine. Yeah. They all look similar. All right. Have you seen this? Uh, this is a pretty famous uh, thing. I've seen a lot of it. It's uh, just a magnet. It's what? It's just a magnet with uh, iron frillings around oh. it. But it uh, yes. looks a lot like oh. the Kaaba with the pilgrims. Oh. Yeah. That's very cool. Chris, I am going to have him say his name for me at the beginning. <laughs> I'm going to write it down right now. Say your name. Mm. 
Hey, Chris, do you have some adapters, just the plug adapter? Because I can, yes. you know, my computing stuff will just needs an adapter, but it's all running out of juice. I don't think I've done an interview in bare feet since Stick Not On, <laughs> which is a pretty good credential. I think this, this looks more civilized. <laughs> it looks very civilized. But I thought you were going to problematize the whole concept of civilized for us. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. I'm trying to do my best. Globally, whatever it fits. <laughs> this is, oh, this, this used to be a little higher. No, whatever. Yeah. You've, you've gotten taller. Yeah. So, um, so I'll tell you what we want to do is well, how close are we? I don't want to talk too much until we're. Well, it's right about two minutes. Two minutes. All right. Two minutes. All right. Then I'll wait until we're sure. really rolling because I don't want you to say anything profound and we haven't captured it. Nothing profound. Don't be interesting. Not yet. Yeah, whatever Not I say yet. is so profound. Save that, your profundity. Yeah. yeah. So you go to the states a lot. Sounds like. Yes, mm -hmm. I go on book tours now mm -hmm. for 20 days, 11 cities, sort of the last mm -hmm. one, from Miami to San Francisco to Oklahoma to Kansas, like it's a huge thing. You see my book? I have, I have it, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. So we'll, I don't do book interviews, but we'll obviously tell people about the book. And That'll be great. Yeah. yeah. Tell people to buy the book. Okay, please. well, I can't do that, but I'll tell <laughs> them. Um, you know, I have a book. Have you taken a look at the book? Just I have, yes, okay. yes. I've taken a look at a lot of things you've done. Yeah, okay, I, I, I actually great. looked at um, interviews you've given and lots of pieces you've written. I looked okay. at a lot of your journalism. Okay, that's great. That's great. Um, I'm honored. What was I going <laughs> to... Well, this is what journalists should do, isn't it? But I know they don't yeah. often. I um, we I, there's a book uh, that I wrote that's that came out of my interviews with scientists. It's been translated and published in Turkey. So um, we have all these Turkish Twitter followers. Okay. Einstein's God. Einstein's God. Yes, okay. I mean it's a small publisher. I think it's a small. Okay, I've right probably there. heard that book. But I haven't been on book tour. Yet. Like God doesn't throw dice, and from that kind of line. Um, yeah, but actually that one is, that's deistic, the one everybody right? knows, but it, that one was, that was actually not a theological not a theolo statement. Yeah, he was, uh, he was just saying there, universe had. He had what he called a cosmic religious sensibility. It's okay. not all about Einstein. It's with other physicists okay. and other scientists okay. as well. But he, uh -huh. he actually had a pretty interesting spiritual sensibility. He was not a theist in the no, classical sense. he was not. He was not an atheist either, I think. No, that's right. Yeah, and I, pentheistic of some sort? I don't know. He, he um, believed in some principle, organizing about, principle. Yeah, or something so he like talked that. about the mind behind the universe, the okay, intelligence okay. behind the universe. He would never have called it God. Okay. And he didn't, I think, um, he had such a reverence for the laws of physics that, that, that it was hard for him to imagine a personal God who would meddle with them. Okay. And yet he. But laws of physics can make I, you believe in God very hmm? strong. You know? Yeah, and I, but I, and so I think it was still hard for him to say there was no intelligence behind it. Okay. But he just didn't feel a need to yeah. nail it down, which is a lot of yeah. the move a lot of scientists make. He he covered all bases. Yeah, I mean. that's right. <laughs> um, so that's should we kind of start? Okay. Yeah, the AC turn offer is probably somewhere there. Right, right next to his laptop. Okay. Yeah. We'll not get nearly as hot in here as the last day. Yeah, Hopefully. I know. Yeah. Look at how my, if <laughs> my hair curls anymore. Where were you before me? Oh, let me oh we were with uh, Jamal Noor. 
Oh, the the, Noor, the, the Sufi lady. lady. Yes, the Sufi yeah, she's lady. Interesting. Hmm? She's interesting. She's interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. And Omid is um, knows her, and so he was p- part of the. Her English is actually really excellent. But we also had a translator. Just occasionally, she would need to okay. translate. And, okay. And uh, she has a chair in Oxford or something now. Like they. She's they creating one. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like it's that. just a yeah, sort of process of doing the fundraising. Okay. For they've done two so far: one in the states okay. and one in Beijing. No. Mm-hmm. And then the Oxford one. Is okay. The I think she's just this California Sufi, as I call it. You know, from California Buddhism. California Buddhism. You what? know that term, California Buddhists. Uh-uh. Like not Buddhist in a very traditional sense, but Buddhist in a very light way. Oh. I think she has a Sufi. I mean, people who follow him, that kind of thing, which is okay, like totally mm-hmm. fine. Um, she's, I think she's the real deal. She's a real yeah. deal? Yeah. At yeah. least some people, like, I know, I mean, I know some people who are following her thing, mm-hmm. but they're kind of partiers and mm. you know, that sort of, not classical Sufi in a shrine, like yeah. those people, which is all good. I mean, I, I like, and I think in Turkey, this culture war has made the conservatives very politically obsessed. Mm-hmm. And okay, well, don't say anything yeah, now. Yeah, Let's yeah. get there. These we'll get the, there. No, we'll okay. get there. So, so the... The um, I started this show. It became a, na- a weekly national show in on public radio in two thousand three, and great. the point um, was that I felt that there was a black hole in American media where you mm-hmm. took religion seriously, and, and and not just as a political voice, but as in mm-hmm. terms of the spiritual and intellectual content mm-hmm. of traditions. Mm-hmm. And so that's what it's been about. It's oh, um, great. So, what I'm what I really want to get at with you that I think you're very great at writing about and talking about Thanks. is really um, pull back the lens and give people some context for thinking about mm-hmm. Turkey's place in the world and Islam in Turkey and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Islam and democracy as it's emerging here. And so um, so really start with that big context of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, I think for Americans, a lot of this is, you know, maybe they yeah. know the words, but they don't really know that. They okay. don't really know. Okay. So a little bit about that sure. as the context for what's happening now also, as the, the history for what's happening now. And and I also want to weave in that, you know, your personal experience and your um, your family and political and religious uh, story as, kind of as a microcosm of, sure. of some of this too. So sure. we'll just organically weave yeah, those sure. things. But I... I do want to start with, um, you know, the fact that uh, what we now call the Middle East was, you know, once part of this empire that yeah, was uh, one of the largest and longest empires in history, 600 years, the Ottoman Empire. And here we are, this place that was the center of it. And what do I think about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, how yeah. Am, I mean, that, that still matters. And maybe it matters in a new way now. Mm-hmm. For sure. What we call the Middle East today was the Ottoman Empire until the 20th century. And as a Turk, I'm not saying this only with a sense of pride or nationalist um, ethos. Uh, I'm saying this also as a historical basis for reform, democracy, and change in this region. Because one little thing that is, uh, one thing that is little noticed about the Ottoman Empire in this part of the world or in, in the West is that the Ottoman Empire had a very long and interesting and phenomenal period of modernization. Hmm. I mean, when the empire collapsed, it was not this medieval monarchy where the sultans rules. It had become a constitutional monarchy with a parliament, an elected parliament. Uh, It had Jewish and Christian members in that parliament. Mm -hmm. Uh, Laws were introduced which gave more rights for women. 
Jews and Christians of the empire had become equal citizens, which is still not the case in some countries in the Middle East, uh, like Saudi Arabia for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the Ottoman elite, this, the statesmen of the empire and the intellectuals, had discussed these issues. Uh, for example, the synthesis between Islam and democracy, which is now being debated again in mm -hmm. the first you know, decade of the 21st century, it was discussed by Ottoman scholars, and it was Ottoman intellectual Nam Kemal, who I quote in the beginning of my book, who said, well, democracy actually corresponds to the Islamic idea of consultation, and the Western principle of freedom, liberty, these actually come from the roots of our religion, the idea of individual rights. Yeah, you've also talked a lot about how there's a great emphasis placed on individual responsibility, which is compatible with the democratic ideal. Definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. I think if you don't have a strong base of political liberalism, your democracy will be also troubled. Because right now in the Middle East there is democratization, but I also see the difference between a liberal democracy and an illiberal democracy mm -hmm. where you know individual liberties are not secured. And even Turkey is still struggling mm -hmm. with those nuances. And I'm sure those problems are there in Tunisia and Egypt especially right now these mm -hmm. days. But the Ottoman effort of modernization in the late 19th century called the Tanzimat, the reorganization period, in which the Islamic Caliphate, the most authoritative Islamic institution on earth, really tried to incorporate some of the systems and ideas that we call Western. And these are liberal Western ideas. Yes. Because from the West, we also had some bad ideas coming to this part of the world, like fascism, or the idea of a single party state, which still dominates Syria, for example. So not everything that came from the West is, uh, is great you know, <laughs> to really? this part of the world. <laughs> Uh, but I think liberal democracy is the better side of the Western modernity, in my point of view. And, and the Ottomans tried to incorporate that in late 19th and early 20th century. And I think the struggle there is very valuable because it shows that democracy has some local roots in this part of the world. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's an important piece of this history that you draw on now. Well, sort of. I mean, in my book, Islam Without Extremes, uh, I go back to the earliest centuries of Islam and show some of the early discussions, theological discussions, which would help us today to mm -hmm. nurture some liberal ideas. Mm -hmm. But I also focus on Ottoman reformers of the 19th century and show how they addressed tough questions like apostasy. You know, right. Because apostasy, which is like changing your religion from another religion, which should be, of course, free, is banned in classical Islamic law. But if you go back to the origins of it, you see that it was banned out of a political consideration, it was seen as changing your, saddle, uh, changing your side in battle. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, the Ottomans realized this, and they you know, set apostasy free. So it became possible in late Ottoman Empire to become a Christian if you're a Muslim. Or there were even open atheists in the Ottoman Empire who were advancing philosophies of some atheist European thinkers. Mm -hmm. And Ottoman Islamic scholars did not behead them or <laughs> did not stone them. They wrote books uh, criticizing their philosophy okay. and advancing the Islamic uh, philosophy. So I think that sort of open debate and discussion is what we really need in the Middle East. And the people who think that it is never unheard of in this part of the world are wrong. Okay. There are liberal trends in the Middle East, and there are, of course, very authoritarian and tyrannical trends too, and they have struggled throughout the centuries. And in my book, I'm trying to show all these uh, different colors in mm -hmm. the history of what I call Islamdom. Um, so... Modern Turkey, what we would think of as modern Turkey, was born after World War One, and um, and then there was what you know what is referred to as the secular revolution of Mustafa mm -hmm. Kemal Ataturk. You would have grown up in that world. You would have been born into that world. Um, I, I wonder um, 
you know, how did you... I'm, I'm curious about this because Ataturk clearly, I mean, just having been here a couple of days is still such an important figure. Oh, cult of personality. Right? Totally. Yeah. So um, how did, how, you know, what was it like? How did you think of Ataturk and, and the Turkish identity, which at that point was secular, um, growing up here? Great question. First of all, I should say, I think secularism is a bit overrated. <laughs> uh, because secularism, in the sense of cleansing religion from the public square, especially in the French way, is not a guarantee for either democracy or liberalism. I mean, we have had many secular tyrants in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the regime, if you, I mean, and even if you actually, actually compare, for example, late Ottoman Empire to Republican Turkey, you can find that Christians of the late Ottoman Empire were more free than the Christians of Republican Turkey, which was a secular right. republic. Mm-hmm. Because with because nationalism, yes. because with secularism came also nationalism, mm-hmm. which was a much less tolerant force than the classical Islamic ideas of you know, different faiths. Uh, and the people of the book, you know, as Islamic uh, tradition calls Christians and Jews, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I believe in principle in a secular state. I think it's a good idea to have a state which is not defined by religion. Mm-hmm. But if that state is defined by some other philosophy than religion, such as Marxism, Leninism, as we saw throughout the Cold War, or fascism, then that's that can be an even worse example. So, and was there a religion in your family? Your grandfather, I've read. Was my one. grandparents were very pious mm-hmm. Muslims. And uh, I think from them, I got my first crash course into Islam, as I would call it. Uh, I learned the basics of my religion from my grandfather. Uh, and actually, there's even a story in my book I, I relate that one, one day in my grandfather's library, I found a book which had very inspiring quotes from mm-hmm. the Quran about creation and human beings and life. But also a, a quote, not from the Quran, but from an old Islamic book, which said, if your children do not start to pray at the age of 10, then beat them up. I read that at the age of nine, and it was a, it was a <laughs> test. Uh, actually, that was probably the beginning of my struggle with this authoritarian elements within Islamic law and, and tradition, and how can we reform them, and how can we, uh, how can we face them as believers, uh, if, as believers of Islam. But yes, my family was religious. Uh, my, my, my grandparents were very religious. My parents were like reasonably religious too, in a common Turkish sense. But I think one thing I learned from my parents, especially my father, is a stance against tyranny. Mm-hmm. Because my father, like almost every politician and intellectual in 1980s, were imprisoned by the military junta in 1980 for nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I saw Your him Your father was an intellectual. He was an intellectual, he was mm-hmm. a writer, he was also a politician. Uh, so the military junta arrested some 600,000 people and many, many people were tortured in 1980. That was the most brutal military coup Turkey had. Mm-hmm. And I, at the age of eight, saw my father behind the barbed wire corridor in this military barracks, which looked like a Soviet gulag. And that day I said, well, probably in my mind, I mean, tyranny is evil, like, like imprisoning people for their ideas, for their beliefs mm-hmm. is wrong. Uh, so in my upbringing, I've also seen that well, I, ex- I, I respect and I actually like the U.S. idea of a secular state in the sense of separation between church and state, which also protects religion as well, not just the state. Right. I mean, you've made the point that, um, that secular, secularism, as it, as it was embodied in, in the Turkish government, it was, is, was, you said was secularist. 
and that it was not modeled on, it was modeled on the French idea of freedom from religion and not the American idea of separation of church and state, a secular state in which religions are free. Totally. I think one of the biggest tragedies of the Muslim world in the 20th century, the Islamic Middle East, is that it never experienced a liberal republic like it is in the United States. The so-called modern secular republics in this part of the world were always one-party states, Mm -hmm. like the Kemalist system in Turkey, or the uh, the Nasser's and the Mubarak's of Egypt, or the Ben Ali of Tunisia. And... Uh, so the alternative quickly became the Islamic radicals, which resisted these secular authoritarian regimes. Mm. So the Middle East was haunted between these secular authoritarians versus Islamic authoritarians. And the middle ground, it's a political system of pluralism and call it liberal democracy, was hardly experienced. Now, I'm happy that to see that with the Arab Spring, it's for the first time that we see not the sudden emergence of a liberal democracy, for sure, but the first twilight of a would-be liberal era right. in the Muslim world. In Turkey, if you're lucky for one thing, we're not lucky because we had a secular one-party state. Arabs had that, too. We are lucky because we had our first free and fair elections in 1950, and since then, Turkey is a functioning democracy with a lot of flaws, with military coups, with still illiberal laws and freedom of speech. But we had more chance to experiment and uh, with a multi-party democratic system. Mm -hmm. Uh, Egyptians are trying it just for six months right now. Yeah, it's in its infancy. It's a new new thing for them. Um, And I do, I want to talk about Turkey and the world right now, but I I, I mean, I do want to point out that, um, so Erdogan, who is the leader now, the prime minister, um, was mayor of Istanbul. He also went to prison um, for for him for inciting religious hatred. but it, it seems that he's undergone, a, 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 he certainly has undergone also a kind of metamorphosis with the experience of power. Yep. Um, and I also have read you writing about your, your father having a similar kind of a trajectory or, or I don't know what you've said, he um, was a right-wing intellectual he, who became liberal but attached to conservative and, uh, values. And he now supports Erdogan, is that right? Uh, to, some extent. Mm-hmm, to some well, extent. Actually, both my father and I, I think, can be considered on the center-right tradition of Turkish politics. So both he and I have opposed military coups and against secularist, secularist mm-hmm. uh, authoritarianism. Uh, but he also criticized Islamists of Turkey as well. So he have always defended the basic principles of liberal democracy. Uh, and I think my, both my father and I, in, my, in our columns, have defended the AKP in the face of the establishment, which wanted to wipe out the party. Right. Like close it down, or like launch a military coup, a judiciary coup, as we call it. Right, the AKP is Erdogan's party. AKP is Uh Erdogan's party, for sure. Uh, And I think Tayyip Erdogan's party, the AKP, the Justice and Development Party, uh, has had a really great start. I mean, in their first term was a great uh, era in Turkish politics of EU reforms, liberalization, more rights for Kurds and minorities, women, uh, economic boosts, and so on. Their second term was a big struggle between them and the establishment, and I have supported the AKP Erdogan's party in the second term too. Mm -hmm. But in the third term, now they have defeated the establishment, now they began to enjoy power, and now they're showing some of the symptoms of the people that they got rid of. (laughs) 
So the symptoms like, of power, I suppose. I mean, Lord Acton was very right when he says power corrupts and absolute hmm. power corrupts absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think we see the we see the evidence of that in the AKP right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps it's a big, um, it's a well, it's a, it's a, it's a it's sort of disappointment for some people, including mine, including me. I still don't see any party which can probably rule Turkey better than the AKP right now. Mm-hmm. But the AKP lost its initial reformist edge. Secondly, Erdogan. Erdogan's personality is, is, it can be an asset, it can be a problem for democracy. It's an asset because he's a very hard, dynamic leader, very, very determined, uh, very willing to do what he sees as right. He's a decider, you know, mm. to use a term. But also he doesn't like to be criticized. Uh, he wants total obedience in his party to his charisma. So he's this man on the fist, uh, man his fist on the table, you know, uh, all the time. And we are seeing the downsides of that, you know, character and that personality, I think, in, in the AKP's third term. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with AKP, the Erdogan's party, is not that it's too Islamic, as people have said from the beginning. I think they have made a great example by moving from classical Islamism to what I call a post-Islamist, mm-hmm. more center-right oriented, uh, like economic uh, focus and so on. But I think they're pr- proving to be too Turkish. Through Turkish, okay. In the sense that they okay. show all the classical problems of Turkish politics, like nepotism, supporting your own people vis-a-vis the other people, uh, not being very professional, not in, not being very transparent in, in, in party affairs. So so there are reasons to be disillusioned by the AKP right now to, to some extent. Now, it seems to me that you became more religious, or are you more religious than your than your parents, or, or more sympathetic towards Islam as a... I am more theologically inspired than okay. my parents, but my social life can be sometimes even more liberal than my parents. They mm-hmm. never dated like people. I mean, they married at the age of 22. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've lived in a more global world, travel more and have more international friends well, and so on. Well, how did that happen to you? How did you start to become, I like that, theologically inspired? Well, because I think my parents lived at a time when your identity was very well defined by your family and your upbringing and your culture and your surroundings. Whereas I lived at a time when who we are, what is the right thing in life, what are the purposes of life became more, became questions that need, you know, more rethinking. And in my final years in high school, I was, I met with religious people, like a religious movement, the Nur tradition in Turkey, mm-hmm. uh, the people who read the books of Said Nursi, an Islamic scholar who died in 1960. And I was inspired by their teaching. And since then, I became very, you know, personally religious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but over time, I also decided that I'm not following any particular school of thought or in particular community. That's why I ultimately define myself as a freelance Muslim. Okay. Uh, but I, I think my conviction to my faith, my loyalty to, to the foundations of my faith remains and I hope it will remain forever. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I sometimes make this analogy, which is very imperfect, but I think it's still useful to talk about. I mean, you've, you've been in the United States a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, again, all things being relative and the circumstances are very different. But the U.S. also had a secular period in the latter half of the 20th century mm-hmm. where elites became very secular and the academy became secular, right? And yeah. there was an illusion of of government being secular and, and workplaces being secular. But the truth is that uh, people remained religious. 
Uh, and, yeah. you know, you've seen that g- bubble up again to the surface mm-hmm. in some ways that are difficult and in some ways that I think are just, you know, it's just become more apparent. And I wonder, I mean, do you think that's true in Turkey as well? There, it was a secularist regime and um, culture officially, but people were still Muslim. And yeah. now, I mean, you may be a good example of what it looks like when that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's just open again mm-hmm. for people to discover. Uh, there that. are certainly similarities between American and Turkish societies in the sense, when you look at the number of people who believe in God, who pray every yeah. day, it's actually very similar to Turkish and American mm-hmm. societies. Uh, Peter Berger, a great yeah. U.S. sociologist, yeah, once said, yeah. U.S. is a country of Indians ruled by an elite of Swedes. Right, so Indians, Indians being, being religious the, people yes. and Swedes are the secular. I, okay. in return, said, Turkey is a country of Indians ruled by a group of North Koreans. <laughs> like, well, I wish we had Swedes. I mean, at least they were liberal. But right. North Koreans, they have their own cult of personality and they're very authoritarian That's and good. so on. So that was the Turkish scene until very recently. So... It, a bit like the you know rise of the Christian right, the moral majority mm-hmm. under Reagan and the heartland of America, you know, and mm-hmm. defying the elites, the blue America, or you know, of yeah. San Francisco or New York. That sort of feeling is a bit similar to the rise of the the Islamic uh, you know muscle or the Islamic uh, mm-hmm. energy in Turkey. It would have been very bad if this Islamic revival was like in Iran. You know, the dictator being overthrown by another dictator who established mm-hmm. now his own dictatorship. You know, you know, Shah had banned the headscarves. Khomeini came and said, now everybody will wear the headscarves because this is his rule. Yeah. Right now. Thank God in Turkey it didn't happen that way. Thanks to our democratic experience, the Islamic camp gradually incorporated into the system. And although they remain too conservative from a secular point of view, I mean, Erdogan has just launched a new culture war on abortion, for example. Mm-hmm. But these are the things that we see in countries like the United States. I mean, nobody says we should stone women in Turkey. The question is yeah. whether abortion should be free or not, yeah. which is, well, you can have your positions on this, but it's not an unheard of debate in a free, open society. No, it's not. So in that sense, uh, I see some parallels between the U.S. Mm-hmm. and Turkish examples. And I also find U.S. a very important example as a Muslim from this part of the world, because one thing in the Middle East is that which blocks an evolution to modernity is the idea that if you become modern, you will be a godless, totally secular society. I mean, I have a very conservative Muslim friend. He went to Amsterdam for a few days, and he said he came back and he said, "We don't want to be like those people." I mean, I respect the Dutch people, but the fact that they're very secular right. comes to the believers in this part of the world as something they don't want to like want to you know aspire for. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in the United States, here is the example of a very devout, pious society in many ways. A very conservative, like believing society, but it's very modern and very open, and it embraces freedom. And of course, it has its own debates and struggles on the meaning of all those things. So I've always believed that the United States can be a better source of inspiration of modernity yeah. for this part of the world. That is unfortunately sometimes blocked by U.S. foreign policy and its implications in this part of the world. So U.S. becomes actually a very unpopular figure because of foreign policy issues. But but when we look at societies. I think the U.S. society is is one that has appeal uh, mm. for someone who wants to be modern and Muslim at the same time. Yeah, and some similarities. Do we can we do we want to try to turn off the? Can we mute your iPad? Your, oh yeah, yeah. Your that iPad that is. It's not my iPad. Oh, it's it, my problem. You know, my oh, iPad. By the way, mine might be on. Although I. Um, it sounds like yeah, it's over here. Yeah. Um, Someone's very popular. It's definitely an Apple. Product. My iPad may be on, although it's not. The volume's not on. And if you have a cell 
<laughs> I just was. Say, oh, here's my. I keep looking. Did we start about? We started at five, right? Good. Okay. What time did we start, Christina? A little after five. We have to redo that okay. now. No, no, no. We're fine. No, we no, will. No. We can live. So I can make sure that it's not you. Uh, I can turn it off. Let me just turn it off. Yeah. One time, Krista um, accidentally left the BBC running on her iPad in her purse. Oh. <laughs> what did I do? During the Grace Lee Bob's interview, we heard, was there a radio on? Is there a radio on? And you had your iPad on. Well, at least it was the BBC. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think this brings us to a, a place I wanted to get. I mean, it's, it's so interesting being in Turkey now. Also, see, I lived in Germany in the 80s. Oh, okay. Turks um, are there a little different. Well, and it was a whole different world. Yeah. I mean, in every way, it was a whole different world. But, um, you know, so much of this, of the, uh, what people would talk about when they talked about Turkey in the last 10 years was, you know, will mm -hmm. they join the EU, will they not join the EU? And here we are at this moment where mm -hmm. being in the EU is no longer necessarily an enviable thing. Yeah. The world around Turkey... I mean, Turkey is in this incredible place on the map. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's always been true, but I think it's yeah. more apparent. Yeah. Uh, everything is shifting, right? Um, clearly, clearly, who knows what will happen, mm -hmm. certainly in the near mm -hmm. term, mm -hmm. in Egypt or Tunisia, mm -hmm. but it's on the move. Mm -hmm. um, and Turkey is right in the center, right, right in the middle of all of this transformation. And I, I do think, you know, Europe is in transformation too, so... Um, what an interesting time to be Turkish and to be it thinking is. about the things you it think is. about. Actually, I'm more proud of Turkey than I have ever been. I'm not proud of everything in Turkey these days. We have still a lot of problems when it comes to freedom of speech. We still have not solved the problems of the minorities, even let alone the majority. So right. we, our, right. our democracy is still very flawed. I'm not one of those people who said we've had a miracle and everything became perfect in this country. No. But there has been but there a has real been important reforms and. The fact that these reforms were partly spearheaded by people of an Islamic commitment is, I think, a good example. Mm -hmm. It's a good message. Uh, and we are now at a critical juncture, whether Erdogan will... He just today, for example, announced that there will be Kurdish classes in Turkish schools, which is a great reform. But two days ago, he was doing something which is totally unacceptable from a liberal point of view. So he has these two sides. I don't know which side will win ultimately. So it's we have too our bad, issues. you know, American politicians are completely consistent in all things. <laughs> Sorry. So we'll, we'll see. We, we will see where Turkey heads. But I think in the 21st century, Turkey has woken up for like eight decades, for eight, nine decades after the Kemalist revolution. I, I think Turkey had this idea that while we have now nothing to do with the Middle East, we have nothing to do with our Ottoman background, our Muslim identity. Turkey has become what I call a French wannabe nation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, well, there are things to admire about the French society or the European democracies and so on, and you can acquire them, but you cannot replicate them. I mean, Turkey, this self, the attitude of self-denial was, I think, wrong. It caused a lot of pain and trouble in this country. I think Turkey is right now becoming more at peace with its history, identity, the Ottoman background. This doesn't mean we'll establish an empire, some people think. Or this doesn't mean that Turkey is face, turning its face from the west to, to east totally. Right. But Turkey is just opening up and trying to establish the links that it once had with everybody in this part of the world. And it's the, the Muslim identity in Turkey, which had been suppressed, is 
now more proud, more visible, more maybe dominant. And But if he can manage to frame this change within democracy and by protecting the rights of the secular citizens and the non-Muslims, this will be a great, great accomplishment. Because we cannot live in a world where there's big divide between East and West. We cannot live mm-hmm. in a world where you have to choose between the free world or... You need countries that will be different, that will be gray and black at the same time. Different or, models. Yeah, they, mm-hmm. you will, they, they will have their own. So you need democracies, democracies with their own cultural tone to it. If, if Turkey will be an example of Islamic democracy, it will not happen when it's run by a bunch of generals who suppress right. the pious. Turkey will become, will become an example of Islamic democracy when it's really pious people embrace democratic values and help advancing them. And it? I think we have mm-hmm. made some progress on Erdogan, that. I wrote any of this, you know, well, I think Gül is my favorite, honestly, in Turkish politics, and Abdullah Gül, the president. Sorry, what? Uh, Abdullah Gül, Turkish president, I think he gets the historical and global meaning of mm. this whole saga better than Erdogan, and I think he articulates a more democratic, liberal vision of, of, of the Muslim identity, honestly. It's also, it's just, it's also a difference between the personalities of the two people. So forgive me for not knowing this, but how does, the, how does it work in Turkey? There's this, the president and the prime minister. Is it similar to European nations where it the president is a bit similar, more of a but the president still has more power than any president in, in EU. In yeah. EU countries, there's either a king or like yeah. a monarch. Or pre, you know, president and presidents are generally ceremonial. presidents are generally symbolic. They have little power. Whereas in Turkey, the president too has some power. Mm-hmm. Actually, that that's the case because after the 1980 coup, the general Kenan Evren, who launched the coup, made himself the president. So he gave a lot of powers to the president. Okay. <laughs> and the generals always assumed that the next president will be also a former retired general. Mm-hmm. Abdullah could change that, so he became the one of the civilian presidents. Oh. Few ones we had. Uh, so and I think and how Abu- does he come become president? Is that it's he not was elected, elected by the parliament. However, the parliament. there was a constitutional amendment in two thousand seven. The next president will be elected by popular vote. Hmm. So we will have the first popular elected president of Turkey in two thousand fourteen. And apparently, Erdogan wants to be that person. Okay, he even wants to increase the powers of the presidency even more. Maybe having a transition to a French system where. Presidents like Mr. Sarkozy have the upper hand, although there's still a prime minister in a cabinet. Right. We will see. I mean, Erdogan is certainly a political leader who has uh, who doesn't shy away from political power. He loves to have it more and more. Well, I mean, here's something he said that sounds like an American politician. Uh, when I'm at home, I'm a Muslim. Could be, yeah. yeah. When, you know, when I'm at home, I'm a Muslim. When I'm in the office, I work for democracy. Yeah. Sure. Sure. I mean, the thing is. Erdogan wants to be this leader who democratized Turkey and who makes Turkey a world power, who has boosted Turkish economy. And he's accomplished some of these already. Mm-hmm. But how well he understands democracy is a good question. And mm-hmm. I think he does. I think his temptation to power sometimes overshadows his commitment to democracy. And but I mean, it shifts uh, yeah. and moves. One and day I, you wake up and you hear a very liberal Erdogan. Two days later you wake up and see a very angry Erdogan who doesn't sound like a democratic leader at all. So we will see what happens. I also think the point you're making is that that the the evolution and the maturation of Turkish democracy is bigger. It's a bigger question than than Erdogan. And it is. It's also a question of how can we decentralize power, bring a system of checks and balances. And how do we get rid of this political culture, which always sees everything in a zero-sum game? Uh, well, I mean, in, Turkish, in, in Turkey, there's a saying, 
there's a phrase. It says, if you give your hand, you'll lose your arm. Mm -hmm. Well, my argument is that if you don't give your hand, you can never have a handshake. So if you don't make concessions on some issues, you will never come to a consensus and in, in, in in agreement. So we still don't have a basic social contract with regards to Kurds, right. with regards to the divisions between the secularists and the Islamists. I think on the secularism issue, we have come to a basic live and let live consensus, although cultural wars are going on and abortion yeah. now on some issues. But I think it's in Turkey, many people accept, the majority accept that. If people want to wear a headscarf, let them wear it. If they want to wear a miniskirt, let them wear it. And, and that's and what that Turkey's is what about. you see here. You see everything all you together. See, yeah, you for see. Sure. And actually, by that example, Turkey is now meaningful for the Arabs. Yes. There are many Arab tourists coming to Turkey, and they see huge mosques with a lot of attendance, and they see huge bars with a lot of attendance. Mm -hmm. And that's what Turkey is. And maybe they want to be like this country now. Yeah. Um, I attended uh, in a year ago, 2011, the U.S. Islamic World Forum, which Brookings oh, I was there and were week, you there this two year? Two weeks ago. Yeah. This was right oh. after. I mean, this was March 2011, April 2011. Oh, okay. Everything was fresh, the Arab Spring, um, and it was very striking to watch uh, one after the other. You know, Egyptians, Tunisians, stand up and talk about Turkey as mm. the model they were looking at. And, and I felt like the Turkish participants, even themselves, were just beginning to take this in. This, this mm. new role, this new visibility with all the new possibilities. And, um, and I wonder how you think that may, you know, come into the, this, there, there's a fermentation of sorts going on, but how does this new, almost responsibility that's been handed to Turkey, you know, how, how are you taking it in and how might it play into what's happening? I think among Turkey's conservatives, there is a belief in what I call Turkey's manifest destiny with regards to the American example, in the sense that they believe that Turkey has a historic mission on Earth, Turks as a people. The idea that Turks were the standard bearers of Islamic civilization for centuries after the Abbasids and the initial centuries of the Arabs. And this is not just about leading, though. It's also... It's also a lot, making the Islamic civilization meet democracy as well. Yes. Because democracy yes. is, is a, ultimately, I mean, in my book, I argue that the democratic ideals have some Islamic uh, counterparts right. uh, in Islamic law and in philosophy. But ultimately, democracy is a creation of the modern West. So the Ottomans also incorporated, began to incorporate democracy in the late 19th century. And Turkey, if there's anything that's special about Turkey, we had a longer experience with that. So... Now, if Turkey can uh, become a country which firmly roots itself in the Islamic civilization, with better ties with the Arabs, and you see that. Mm -hmm. Turkish think tanks are opening bureaus in Cairo right now. That's mm -hmm. great. But also they keep on being a part of the Western alliance, uh, being a part of the international system, build dialogue between the tough actors in the Middle East, such as Iran and, and, and the United States, for example. Well, and also being and literally also be, a bridge to Europe as yeah, well, exactly, exactly. geographically. So if Turkey can walk this you know, mutual-like uh, path, it will be a more and more inspiring figure. But mm -hmm. this is also, I mean, whether we'll be able to do this or not, we'll see. I mean, Turkey still likes a lot of uh, intellectual background. I mean, very few people in Turkey speak Arabic. Because we've been cut off from the Arab world. I mean, we don't speak Arabic. Arabs don't speak Turkish. These are very different languages. Right, right. We even don't know the alphabet. It's not like Egypt, which lost its language to, to Arabic, right? We're 
Well, I mean, you know, there was there is yeah, no the Egyptian. Barbary, I mean, yeah. the North African. Yeah. But I mean, the thing is, the Ottoman language was written by the Arabic scripts, and it had a lot of Arabic words, but mm-hmm. it was Turkish grammar. Modern Turkey changed the alphabet. It even purged Arabic and Persian words in Turkey to clean the I language. We had this thing called the language revolution, which is, I think, catastrophic. The, the number of the, the Turkish vocabulary shrank because we had to get rid of the Arab and Persian words mm-hmm. and Turkish language institution, a, a, a construct of the new regime, created new dictionaries by artificial words. So this was the Ataturk regime. Though. Yeah, that was okay. the Ataturk regime. Yeah. So the idea was to de-Arabize and de-Persianize mm-hmm. Turkish culture. Now, that looked like progress from some point of view, but I think it was also imp- empowerment in terms of literature and even thinking, because, I mean, we lost many nuances. Mm-hmm. And of course, the whole society became illiterate overnight when you change the whole alphabet. Mm-hmm. And today, a, a, a Turk on the street cannot read what his grandfather wrote. So there are like some cultural still barriers between Turkey and the Arab and the Arab world. But the thing is, the new Turkish elite is willing to overcome these right. challenges. And, I mean, in a sense, it's interesting if you look at it in a great big, with a great big view. It's a, it's also a moment for Turkey to reconnect with some of its own best legacy. Sure, right? definitely, definitely. And in Turkey, actually, there are a few narratives. So if you're a Kemalist, your golden age is the age of Ataturk, and you think everything was perfect there, and all your mission is to keep, keep it living. And if you're a conservative, I mean, I mean in the religious conservative, your golden age is the Ottoman Empire, and you connect right. yourself with the empire all the time. This doesn't mean that you have to run an empire again. You have to occupy countries and establish an empire again. But you look to the world from the eyes of an Ottoman. So what happens in Bosnia becomes very important for you because Bosnians are your Muslim right. Ottoman writers. I mean, they're more Bosnian uh, prime ministers' Ottoman history than you know the ones who are ethnically Turkish or Arabs in Palestine or or Egypt or these are or Baghdad. When Baghdad we speak of Baghdad, it's the Ottoman. Right. It right. was the Ottoman go- governorate until you know right. early twentieth century. So that way of looking to the world is more actually open-minded in some sense, because also the secularist vision was very nationalist and isolationist. But I should say that Turkey is not simply moved by a naive, you know, yearning for the Ottoman Empire. Turkey is not big in Africa. The Ottomans never went to, like, Africa, besides North Africa, because there's a lot of job opportunities. I mean, Turkey is second after China in terms of construction and, Mm. and infrastructure in African countries. There are Turkish schools being opened in all African countries, from South Africa to yeah. to Kenya. Uh, these are the quality schools. A bit like the French or British schools in 19th century, opened by the missionaries. Yeah. So Turkey has this kind of religious movement, which opens schools all around the world and brings some Turkish culture. Uh, so th- Turkey, I think, shows a sign of becoming a important player in world politics and culture in the 21st century. And I hope this will be a contribution to the world. Yeah. As a Turk, I hope that. I mean, there are some... I was looking at some polls. Um, I mean, first of all, Erdogan received this rapturous welcome in Egypt in 2011. Um, I was looking at some polls that were done in Egypt by an American think tank. Um, you know, if Egyptians were saying, you know, if, if there could be one superpower, 41% wanted it to be Turkey. Saudi Arabia got 25%. The U.S. got 5%. Um, what was the other? I'm very admiring of Erdogan as a leader, um, and 
and much more admiring of Turkey than, for example, Saudi Arabia, than uh, in terms of the model of the role Islam should play in, mm-hmm. in society mm-hmm. and in politics. But I wonder, um, you know, I was kind of interested, you've written about uh, the Islamic Calvinists in, mm-hmm. in Turkish, in, the, in 1980s Turkey, who were part of the renewal mm-hmm. of this place. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just want to ask you what, you know, to you, you, we've been circling around this, but, it, you know, if Turkey is presenting a model uh, for emerging democracies with Islamic populations, mm-hmm. um, what, you know, what are some, some of the components of that? First of all, probably I should say, I think there are three models right now in the Middle East. One is Iran, and that's a model of the people who want to fight and establish theocracies and resist Israel in the sense of you know, yeah. destroying Israel. Uh, the other one is Saudi Arabian model, which is politically moderate, like willing to have a two-state solution and so on, but but religious-wise, very authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Like you have religious police. So I mean, Saudi Arabia is the model of the Salafis in Egypt, for example. And then there's Turkey now as a new model. I mean, Turkey was irrelevant 10 years ago because it was a secularist country, right. which didn't even look to the Middle East, uh, which was run by a, generals, a cadre of generals who banned the headscarf, who would take Turkey as an example. But the new Turkey is an example. It's an example for those people who want to be loyal to their tradition, their religious values and so on, but also who want to be a part of the modern world, who do not want to be a yes man for Western capitals, but who wants to work with them. So mm-hmm. I think there's an interesting nuance there. Uh, so Turkey is the model right now, for example, the Nahda party in Tunisia, which says, well, we are Islamic people, we come from Islamic backgrounds, but we will not establish an Islamic regime. We will you know, work with the secularists and focus on economic development and reform and modernization and so on and so forth. So in that sense, I think Turkish model how well the Arabs understand this is, is a good question because there is a cultural disconnect. Yeah. And secondly, I should also say that Turkish model cannot be imported. I mean, every country has its own history, right. background. I mean, so it would be naive to say to that yeah. everybody should copy Turkey. But just as an idea that, well, you can be like the Turks in okay. the sense that you can be still visibly and seriously Muslim, but you can focus on economic development. You can work uh, with the West. You can still you know, have a not very promising, but still not that process with the EU. Uh, And you can be even a part of NATO, but this doesn't mean that you're betraying your values. You can stand for Palestine, but you don't have to oppose Israel's existence. So, because, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. as much as, you know, Turkish government is pro-Palestinian, they're not anti-Israel. I mean, they've criticized Israel strongly, maybe too strongly on some issues, but ultimately they want a two-state solution. So combining all those things, I think, makes Turkey a source of inspiration for the Arab reformists who, with the post-Arab, in the post-Arab uh, spring world, mm-hmm. want to have political movements that are respectful to religion, but that are also modern and realistic. Yeah, I um, I, I really like this idea of Islamic Calvinists. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, a, again, yeah. okay. there's an echo for me of early American democracy, okay. where all of the organizations of civil society for a long time were Christian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the Rotary Clubs, the Chamber yeah. of Commerce, the YMCA, which y- is now is, is now just the YMCA, but it was yeah. right. It was Young Men's Christian Association, and then gradually over generations, there was a secularization yeah. of this. Uh, Islamic Calvinists is a term coined by a European think tank, which uh, European Stability Initiative, uh, which studied 
conservative businessman in Turkey, and especially heartland of Turkey, the Midwest of Turkey. Conservative meaning what? Religiously conservative? Religiously conservative businessman who opened up very successful companies. Uh, they build, they create f- like refrigerators or TV, or they they make produce blue jeans and sell to Africa and the Middle East and you know four corners of the world. These very successful, economically entrepreneurial, hardworking businessmen. So especially cities like Konya and Kayseri, which are at the very core of Turkey and very religiously very conservative cities, mm-hmm. uh, they found that the businessmen here say Prophet Muhammad was a merchant. So when they look at Prophet Muhammad, they don't see a warrior, but they see a businessman. And they say that like Prophet Muhammad, we are opening up companies and you know making money and using that money for also social goods, for, for social purposes like opening up soup kitchens, funding charities, uh, or you know like giving scholarships to poor uh, poor students. Thanks to that initiative in Turkey right now, Turkey has very a big very large uh, charity sector. And um, some of that has been politically, you know, recognized by the Gaza flotilla. But that's just one yeah. example of that. Turkey also, like, open, Turkish NGOs, Turkish charities open up, uh, like, uh, mines, or, sorry, what, Turkish charities open up wells in Africa or bring medicine to African nations. Uh, they open up schools. So uh, they help to tsunami victims. And that is financed mostly by this conservative, uh, religiously conservative mm-hmm. part of the population who believe that helping your neighbor is a godly duty. And that part of the populace is also the voting block for the uh, governing party, the AKP of type Erdogan, because they see in Erdogan a leader who you know reflects their values and who helps their business at the same time. Yes, Because AKP is also a very business-driven party and therefore policy is also very much linked with Turkey's financial uh, trade interests. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in that sense, that social transformation is also very important. And in my book, Islam Without Extremes, I also show that these Islamic Calvinists are also approaching to their religious traditions, sometimes in a more liberal way than their forefathers. And that also shows how religious attitudes are changing in Turkey, mostly to the positive, Mm -hmm. mostly positive from a liberal perspective. Of course, it's a long process, and we still well, have closed minded. Yeah, no, they say. I mean, it was a long process in the U.S. as exactly, well. Exactly, um, exactly. So just like in the United States, where ev- almost every big university was opened by churches, but they gradually became more secular and mainstream institutions. I expect Turkish civil society to create this new uh, dynamic, uh, like as institution, institution. Uh, is, I expect the Turkish civil society to create more dynamic institutions. Mm-hmm. And I, I see that the very process makes them look at the world from a more liberal, from a more globalist and pragmatic perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'd be curious about, um, obviously over the last 10 years, I've talked to a lot of people about Islam. Like what, you know, the, the, this moment in time within Islam. And clearly it's a huge, it's a, over a billion people. And there's not one face of Islam, but um, just from where you sit, um, and even across your lifetime. I mean, you actually were not raised that religious. You, as you said, are theologically inspired now. I mean, how do you think about uh, wh- what is happening in this moment inside this, this tradition? Well, first let me say that Americans hear about Islam, unfortunately, by looking at or hearing about the most unpleasant elements of the Islamic civilization. 
And it's just happening the other way around on this part of the world. I mean, in 2010, the most frequently quoted pastor in America in the Turkish press was this gentleman in Florida who wanted to burn the Quran. He did not represent mainstream Christian attitudes, but right. he was on the news all the time. So there are some very radical uh, Islamic scholars or you know imams who are disrespectful to other faiths, and they make the news, although they don't represent the mainstream uh, Muslim position. Having said that, I should acknowledge that, well, Islamic world needs, needs, needs a lot of change. We need change on issues of religious freedom. Islamic world was once a beacon of religious freedom when compared to Catholic uh, medieval Europe, yes. but now it is not. Uh, we need reform on women's rights. We need reform on minority rights. We need a more open mind in many issues. But th this change will not come when Islamic countries are being occupied by foreign powers, or they will not come when there are secularist dictators which put people in prison for being pious Muslims. Mm -hmm. Actually, those traumas have blocked the way for reform in this part of the Middle East. What we need is change within. What we need is a dynamics of change that will be loyal to Islam, but will be also more pragmatic and rational and open-minded about the world. And that depends on economic change, that depends on raising a middle class, and that depends also on intellectuals and artists and thinkers and, and community leaders who will be, again, loyal to their faith, uh, and, but who will also change, who will also ask for change, who will ask for openness for the sake of the faith, not at the expense of the faith. Right. In the US, sometimes, some people become famous. I mean, you see sometimes ex-Muslims who say, Islam is a very bad religion, I left it, and... and, and I don't hear Yeah, there are mm -hmm. people, and I, I respect their stories, although I don't agree with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, and some Westerners think, oh, these are the Muslim reformers. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's not possible. I mean, if there will be a Muslim reformer, right. that Muslim reformer should respect Islam right. first. Right, moderate Islam It should will be not within be, Islam will, first, will, and will you cannot faithful. expect uh, people who defame Islam to be... Mm -hmm leading any change in the Islamic world. Sometimes, actually, they block change, as I said, because it, it makes people more defensive. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the Islamic world, the West should help for sure. But, but you um, know, that's the question of how, how to help. I mean, um, I, again, this is an imperfect analogy, but it's one I find useful. You know, I often say to American audiences, Islam is 700 years younger than Christianity. And 700 years ago, it was Christians who were waging holy wars yeah. and burning heretics at the stake. And... And uh, I don't think, you know, it's not, it's not right to say, well, Islam needs a reformation like Christianity had a reformation. Islam will evolve as it evolves. And, but um, the, the difference now is that um, Islam's problems are global problems, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the fanatics of Islam have global weapons and, and transportation and communications. So everyone has a stake in it. But I, I think it's a, it's a real question. I think it's a question a lot of Americans would like to ask. So what, you know, what would be the role? And I mean, not just for governments, but for citizens. First of all, I mean, I think nobody can come from outside and change the minds of Muslims. Actually, if they do that, they will not be helping the situation here. So first of all, I think Westerners, I understand the Western concerns about radical Islam. I have those same concerns. Yeah. Well, most and these of are understandable, the front, it's Muslims concerns. on the front line. It's yeah, certainly. Sort, sort of. I mean, and I have concerns about radical Hindus who kill innocent Muslims in India, too. So there are radicals everywhere. But in the past two decades, it's Islamic radicals who have targeted the West most of the time. And I understand the concern. But th the reaction should not be, oh, there are radicals, so go let's go and occupy a few countries 
and, and solve the problem. This is wrong. So some people make analogies between Nazi Germany in the 30s and Islamic radicals of today. That's a wrong analogy. We don't have a Nazi Germany example here. We have radicals who are out there, and if you occupy a country, they will go to the next country, and they'll be probably more determined because you've occupied their land and so, so on. So how so, could Americans support you, even in Turkey? I mean, this, this emerging democracy that you described. if Americans want to help change in the Muslim world, I think they should avoid military conflicts between Islam and the Western world. They should find a way to solve problems, political problems in the Middle East, such as the Palestinian-Israeli problem. And they should engage culturally. I've, I've seen that like confrontations between Islam and the West have always created more radicalism on the side. Whereas cultural exchanges, mm-hmm. uh, more media, more travel, more scholarships, more peaceful interactions, trade, openness, internet. I mean, we owe the Arab revolutions to Twitter, Facebook, things like that. Thank, thanks to American companies for giving us these tools. We, we appreciate them. <laughs> right. Uh, but we don't owe it to like a liberal operation Iraqi freedom or something, which is, which created more. I mean, I'm glad that Saddam Hussein is gone, but I have seen that the Iraq War also created a lot of resentment against America mm-hmm. because it was seen as a colonial adventure. I'm not saying it was it was mm-hmm. or not, but it was seen that way by a lot of people in this part of the world. So I think avoiding a confrontational tone and engaging in dialogue. And, and also, economic development is very important in these countries. I'm not talking about aid here. I'm talking about opening up, allowing the Middle East to develop market economies. It's very important. Uh, that's one of the also keys for Turkey's success. We owe Turkey's Islamic Calvinists to Turkey's capitalist free market economy. And unfortunately, the Egypt, Egyptians don't have that yet. Right. Uh, so allowing, like fostering economic they change They need some Islamic Calvinists, the Egyptians. Yeah, capitalism is a helpful, <laughs> helpful dynamic sometimes. Yeah. And I think we also need those economic ties between this West. Like, let me tell you one thing. When I was growing up, I knew America from Rocky Balboa and, and Bruce Springsteen. I loved Rocky them. Balboa. Oh, totally. Like, he's a, <laughs> I'm a fan. He still has a, has a poster here. Uh, so that idea of American... Like America as a land of freedom that everybody goes and, you know, becomes who they are. The story of American Muslims that is little known is also important. I mean, I go to America, I see people praying in the middle of New York, and that's great. You know, I'm happy to see that freedom. Uh, That freedom should not be curbed, of course, by some Islamophobes in the United States who see every Muslim as a problem. That's one thing. Secondly... The America should be seen not through Abu Ghraib prison and tortures and black sites and Guantanamo's of the world. I understand how they came to be, but they were wrong, I think, decisions. America should be seen through Rocky Balboa's and Bruce Springsteen's and Little House on the Prairie. I actually even remember that. My grandparents yeah. loved watching that. So those parts of American culture, which has universal value, I think should be seen by Muslims. Uh, but if you're if you're living in Palestine and all you know about America is that America supports Israel and Israel in return bombs your country, that's a, that's a bad image of America. Um, another really amazing, and fascinating thing about Turkey is, uh, well, as you say, I mean, you've written that Turkish identity is synonymous with Muslimness, but here we are also in what it was and still is the center of uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, mm-hmm. 300 million Christians worldwide. We're going to see Bartholomew, um, the patriarch, later in the week. Um, so Turkey is also an experiment in Muslim-Christian encounter. Certainly. The ecumenical patriarch, patriarch, Balto, certainly, 
the ecumenical patriarch Bartolomeo is actually an asset for Turkey. I respect him as a religious leader, Christian leader. I think he has, he's very wise and he's, I think, very constructive when it comes to religious dialogue and international issues. I have great respect for the institution. Uh, unfortunately, the ecumenical patriarchate has been demonized by some Turks in the 20th century, and not because out of Islam most of the time, but out of nationalism. Turkey's political tensions with Greece, which was mostly focused on Cyprus, mm. became a reason in Turkey to persecute or demonize the Greeks within Turkey. Although mm -hmm. they were Turkish citizens, many people here perceived them as the fifth column of the neighboring Greece. Right. And the fact that Turkish Muslims in Greece did not have full religious freedom became a reason to not give full religious freedom to our Greek citizens, including the ecumenical patriarch. Uh, so this was a vicious cycle that really traumatized Turkish, Turkish Christians, uh, partly Jews in the 20th century. But actually, with, in the new 21st century, we are moving away from that doomed legacy. And AKP still has a lot of reasons to be criticized for on freedom of speech. What One thing that the Erdogan government did was to get rid of some of these uh, limitations on, mm -hmm. on Turkish Christians and, and Jews. Patriarch Bartholomew has said that he feels more openness in, with an Islamic government than he did with a secular exactly, government. Exactly, exactly. Because, well, Turkey's secularists did not like religion, and religion included Christianity right, it as well. It wasn't just Islam, yeah. <laughs> so sometimes you see religious people standing together in the face of an authoritarian secularist regime, and that was the case in Turkey. Uh, there has been important Muslim religious leaders in Turkey who have defended the patriarchate or Turkish Jewish community against nationalists who demonize these groups, these mm -hmm. minority groups. Yeah. Uh, and I'm happy to see more and more of that. Of course, there are still the steps to be taken. The Halki Seminary, the, the seminary still has not been teaching opened, institution uh, of the ecumenical patriarchate should be opened. Mm -hmm. Why are why it's not still opened? I don't know. But the the problems are coming from Turkey's educational laws. No private education is allowed in Turkey. Everything has to be right. under state tutelage, including Islamic education and so on. So there are problems coming from there. But Erdogan should do this reform as soon as possible mm -hmm. and, uh, and show to the world that new Turkey, which is more democratic and more Muslim than the past, is also more free. Uh, there are some reasons to say, yes, that's the case. There are some still problems which you know, make that answer not perfect. But I hope, my hope is that the Erdogan government will keep on reforming, and those reforms include, will include uh, reforms that will further uh, help the Christians of Turkey. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot of uh, fear among secular Turks. They're, the world has changed um, yeah. for them in a, in, a, in a very challenging way. And I wonder how you respond to that fear. You know, what, what is the voice for secular Turks now in this emerging Turkish political? Well, order? secularist Turks, maybe. There are differences between secularist Turks and secular Turks. Secular or secularist? Okay. There can be secular liberals who think differently from the secular. And there can be but, secular Muslims but, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Mm -hmm. Well, secularist Turks should need to understand that, well, if they want political power, they should win elections. I mean, until now, they held political power through the military uh, or the judiciary, which protected their ideology in the face of elected governments. That's why they got lazy. <laughs> they have no vision for the future of Turkey. They don't know how to govern an economy. Turkey's main opposition, which represents the secularist uh, main uh, trend in society, uh, they are still very weak when compared to the uh, party of Tayyip Erdogan, 
in terms of their economic vision, in terms of their understanding of the world, in terms of their understanding of foreign policy. So they need to learn how to win votes, as the Islams have done okay. before. And so they need to be more. Uh, they need to. They start. They need to start to use iPads or computers instead of just. They're actually more backward technologically. And globally. <laughs> I feel like I don't know enough to ask you the hard questions. Do you think every secularist jerk would agree with that characterization? Well, I mean, of them? it depends. But if you go to CHP, like a bureau, election bureau, and yeah. if you go to an AKP election bureau, you will see that the AKP election bureau is much more advanced technologically oh. and in terms of their in their system of. Uh, because these parties were determined to win elections to come to power, whereas the secularists were always in power thanks to the state, the authoritarian states, which reflected their values. Mm -hmm. Now that state is gone, good morning, that's the new world, so now you have to win elections. And actually they're showing some signs of progress, so I'm happy to see that. The CHP is changing some of its old attitudes, trying to look more reformist on some issues. Uh, it's a small step for them, but you know maybe mm -hmm. it will be a bit bigger step for us. Um, I just want to ask you a couple more questions. Uh, this we talked about this incredible place of Turkey on the map. Uh, it means that Turkey is at the center and and can and certainly is poised to be a kind of leader. I I also could imagine looking at Turkey on the map with, you know, bordered by, uh, well, all the places: Iran, Iraq. I mean, where you know you're you're at Europe. You're um, that you could say this is an impossible place to be on the map. I mean, do, do, you, do you worry about that? Is it how, how can you uh, how can you how can you move forward with with all of that pressing on Turkey? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sorry, can I just can I take a minute break? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, because okay. my editor might be right now. Okay, I'm just with five more minutes. I have one more question after this. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Just this. Yeah, and uh, and then just one more question. Okay. Well, Turkey is certainly in a tough neighborhood. Uh, we have border. We have we have our longest border is with Syria, which is certainly right. not, not even, the most I'm, pleasant country. Yeah. The other one is Iran. And there is, well, the, the Caucasus, Armenia, and, well, we have a closed border with Armenia, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And there's Azerbaijan and, uh, and you know, Georgia, it goes on. And so these are all countries with deep political problems. Uh, well, the European side look used to look nicer. Right. Greece right. was okay until yeah. recently, but now Greece is collapsing, so yeah. we have issues there. So Turkey is indeed in a very tough neighborhood. But being in a tough neighborhood might be a disadvantage, or it can be an advantage if you're a country that can influence your neighbors for mm -hmm. good. Uh, and while we actually were almost doing that, right before the Arab Spring, Turkey had initiated a zero problems with neighbors policy. Uh, we had opened borders with Syria and, and things have improved. We even took some steps with Armenia, which unfortunately did not work. Turkish-Greek relationships became much better than it ever were. Uh, the the Arab Spring, of, of course, changed the structure of mm -hmm. the political situation in the Middle East. Uh, I'm not saying this in a way which is disapproving of the Arab Spring, not at all. But the Syria, uh, the relations between Syria and Turkey became very tense because Turkey stood rightly, in my view, with the opposition against the regime and the tyrannical regime of Bashar Assad. 
but ultimately, I think Turkey. Sorry. I'm sorry. Ultimately, I think Turkey can turn this dangerous neighborhood into an asset for itself and even help its neighbors. For example, one thing Turkey desperately tries to do is to find a diplomatic solution to the nuclear crisis between Iran and the West. Right. Well, we tried. We tried a few times. Mm-hmm. It didn't fully work yet. Mm-hmm. But the talks in Iran between Iran... Turkey can become that? Yeah, that. the talks in Iran, uh, the talks in, in Istanbul between Iran and the West was the most fruitful one. And mm-hmm. it, it is type Erdogan who can have a great meeting with Barack Obama mm-hmm. and then next day go yes. to talk to Ayatollah Khamenei and, and communicate between these two leaders while having their trust, both of them. So that's a rare country. So maybe being on the border of Iran can have an advantage in that sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will see. For a long time, Turkey feared anybody that's beyond its borders. When I was in school, we learned that Turkey is a country surrounded by seas from three sides and by enemies from four sides. That was a motto I learned in school. It was the 80s. And Tayyip Erdogan, the prime minister, he said that Turkey is not a country like that anymore. So Turkey is becoming more global-minded, and mm-hmm. I, I, I welcome that change. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also we have to be more cautious and, and, and think, sometimes think twice in the way how we act because we have also seen that Turkish power is not as much as we, we thought it was in the past few years. Okay, the last, this is my last question. Okay. Um, so... As you personally, as you look at uh, the world and the present, you know what what um, gives you the most concern, and and what gives you what, what makes you hopeful right now. When I look at the world, the thing that gives me the biggest concern is the Israeli-Palestinian problem. Honestly, because it is, I still see no sign of a two-state solution or any solution. Well. There can be a one-state solution, but I think few people want that. Uh, and that question, well, it's been sidelined to some extent by the Arab Spring, and maybe that's mm-hmm. good news. But that problem in the Middle East is this engine of radicalization. Every radical Islamic groups begin with talks about Palestine and how it's oppressed and so on. And they might be, and their solution can be totally unacceptable, like destroying Israel. But the very fact that the Palestinians are oppressed makes their rhetoric more more acceptable. So I think uh, if the United States can convince Israel to retreat from some of its positions and accept a peace that will be, well, maybe it will give a a little bit less land to Israel, but more peace and security and ultimately give the Arabs a live to land on, that will be be very good for the world, for this region. Mm -hmm. But I'm a little concerned about how that is evolving. I'm also partly concerned about how things will go in Egypt with the Salafis and the Muslim Brotherhood in, in, there and the military still power uh, still uh, in power to some extent. However, I also know that in Turkey, I mean, nurturing our democracy, which is still flawed, it took a lot of time. So I'm not expecting miracles anyway from the Arab Spring. I basically think that, I mean, Arab Spring is a positive development and I'm mo- most optimistic about Tunisia. As for Turkey... I hope that Tayyip Erdogan, with all his power, will keep on using this uh, power to reform Turkey's laws, to bring more freedom to Turkey's Kurds, Christians, and, and, and minorities, and everybody, uh, and not simply to boost his own power for hunger. And that's a threat right now in Turkey. 
Uh, I don't want to be unfair to Erdogan because he has accomplished many reforms, mm -hmm. but I can't give him a blank check because I've seen that sometimes he has a tendency to use his power without any restraint. And power, as Lord Acton puts it well, can corrupt. And that's true for everybody, including our prime minister. Okay. What gives you hope when you look at the Arab world? What, do you, what, what, what are you most um, uh, excited about in terms of what's good that's happening? What is... What is, I think, hopeful about the Arab world is that Arabs now believe in change. They believe that the world can change. Well, it can change for the better, for the worse, but it can change because there was this idea that the Arab world is so stagnant yeah. that it is, it, there was this idea that Arabs love dictators, their culture is prone to dictatorship, so they will never change it. Well, this has changed. There was this idea that Islamics, Islamists will come and cut everybody and, you know, like put women in burqas for sure. Well, there's, there are some Islamists who still believe that, mm -hmm. but even they are trying to show that, well, they're not that bad. So I am very happy to see that the Arabs are trying to catch up with the modern world. I mean, when the Soviet Union fell, you know, it took time in the post-Soviet countries to develop the markets. They're still not the markets. Still, still I mean, work in progress. Just look at Hungary, even yes. Hungary, apart yeah. EU, like, and... And even look at Europe, some of these right-wing, almost fascist parties that are becoming very popular in Europe, so much for European you know, values. So there mm -hmm. are problems even in Europe right now in the EU. Uh, so it takes time. And, but the Arabs, I think, have shown in Tunisia, in Egypt, and Libya that they are willing to change, and that change is not for negative. They, they want freedom, they want democracy for like everybody else. Because there was this, I think, bizarre argument in the West that Arabs don't want... Right. Freedom. They want dictatorial regimes. Right. Well, they had dictatorial regimes because some Western powers were supporting them for, 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 for a while. That was one reason. So I think it was not a rightful argument. Uh, of course, like, evol and I think Americans should not forget, like, alcohol was banned in America a century ago. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, th I think it was the wrong idea. And ultimately, Americans realized that it breeds nothing but mafia. But even some of the cultural attitudes change in the U.S. Mm -hmm. gradually within the democratic process so with some mistakes time. sometimes mm -hmm. and trials and errors. And I think democracies in this part of the world will take some of those routes too. And ultimately they will learn the lesson that, you know, ultimately what you need is freedom for everybody, justice and freedom for all. Okay, thank you. You're thank released you. now. My pleasure. But we are, we're going to be able to make an this. Oh, yeah, sure. And my is Tamam tamam göndereceğim göndereceğim merak etme. 10-15 dakika 